Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network and the New Books in Jewish Studies channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I am grateful and honored to be in dialogue today with Dr. Julia Elsky. We will be discussing her new book, Writing Occupation, Jewish Emigre Voices in Wartime France published by Stanford University Press 2020. Julia is Associate Professor of French at Loyola University in Chicago. Julia, I cannot thank you enough for this remarkable book and for your time and attention today. Thank you so much for the kind words and thank you for having me on the podcast today. Thank you. The, The honor is mine. Thank you. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult? I grew up in New York City in an area of the Bronx called Riverdale. And uh, um, I would say, um, in part thanks to my primary and secondary education, I've always been really interested in bilingualism and in Jewish migration. I went to um, school through the end of high school uh, that had a dual curriculum in Hebrew and in English. And I had amazing history teachers and French teachers, um, especially in my high school Ramaz. And uh, a formative experience, I guess, would be studying Talmud in school. I was always really fascinated by the coexistence of biblical Hebrew and rabbinical Hebrew and Aramaic on the same page. And I think it's really thanks to that education that I've been interested in close reading and also the idea that languages migrate with people. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Well, in a way, I began the book or began my interest in this topic when I was in college at Barnard College. I had an amazing French professor, Serge Gavronsky, and in one of his classes, 
in the early 2000s, I learned about this writer who was being rediscovered named Irene Nemirovsky. And I became really interested in her and I wrote a paper on her. And then I was able to do a long-term project through um, the Centennial Scholar Program at Barnard College. And so I became interested in Irene Nemirovsky really early on. And when I went to graduate school, I wanted to continue to work on her in a way. And I became interested in looking at what other Jewish writers were writing about in France, about the experience of migration to France, and also about the experience of the Second World War. So I began to uh, find different writers and different um, different Jewish immigrant writers who were writing in the, about the war. And I became really interested in how their how they wrote about their experience of French and French language and the experience of the Second World War in France. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? So my book is about Jewish Eastern European writers who came to France in the teens and 20s and wanted to establish themselves as French writers. And I look at how their approach to writing changed. And uh, uh, how how it changed, I should say, during the Second World War, as opposed to the, their interwar experiences. And I argue in my book that these Jewish emigrant writers under the occupation used French to express their shifting um, cultural, religious, linguistic identities. Um, they wrote about being Jewish, being foreign, but they did so in French and in ways that um, contest the boundaries between foreignness and belonging. And they were doing it at a time, of course, when um, these boundaries were very, you know, uh, were not shakable. <laughs> they were legal boundaries um, of exclusion. And my my book also tells the history of the occupation through the lens of these writers, because I look at key moments of the war through their literature and their literary depictions. So the June 1940 civilian flight from Paris, life in the occupied and Southern zones, um, the resistance in France and in London. So um, I, I look at these moments of the war through the lens of these immigrant writers. And some of the primary themes would be the experience of Jewish life in France, multilingualism, uh, Jewish francophonie, exile and displacement, and also responding to stereotypes. What dilemmas of Jewish identity manifest in the writings you interpret in this book? What complexities of Jewish identity show up in the texts you examine? So it, the dilemmas of Jewish identity definitely manifest themselves in different ways for the different writers. Um, for some, they're relating to a grappling with Frenchness and Jewishness um, that you know begins in the interwar period and doesn't get erased by the war, but is you know further complicated by persecution under the occupation. Um, so uh, one of these dilemmas, uh, I guess, would be about relating to French universalism and Jewish identity, uh, and especially relating to how French universalism is undone by the Vichy regime. Um, so I could think about the poet Benjamin Fondan, who in part came 
to France because of its legacy of universalism that gave Jews um, civil rights from the French Revolution onward. So the first country um, to grant to emancipate um, Jewish people. And he he has a, a poem or part of one of his poems um, called Journée de Juin or June Days, where he talks about um, being on the road in France, so this displacement during the civilian flight in June 1940, and he says, "Didn't we have a a meeting on the roads uh, in July 19 uh, July 14, so Bastille Day, and so you see this this moment of you know despair at the failure of French universalism, and uh, so that that's one one aspect um, is you know this Jewish identity in a, in in the French Republic. Um, another, another dilemma of Jewish identity um, would be, you know, kind of the flip side, which is responding to French anti-Semitism as, as Jewish writers who, you know, were seeking a place as writers in France. Um, Irene Nemirovsky is someone who deals with French anti-Semitism quite a bit in her interwar novels. And then um, actually, um, she kind of erases that whole discourse about Jewish identity in her wartime writing. Um, in part, you know, Su Susan Suleiman has written great work on Irene Nemirovsky, where she she argues, uh, and I agree with her, that this kind of removal of Jewish voice from her wartime writing shows the rejection uh, that she felt from the French nation during the war. What does your book reveal about Vichy France? How can students and historians of the Vichy regime benefit from your book's revelations? Um, well, I want to say I benefited quite a bit from history of Vichy France and um, and the hi historical and cultural background uh, was really important to me as I was doing kind of more literary um, readings of these fictional works by Jewish immigrant writers in France. And I hope that my study illuminates an alternative view of literary life in France during the war. So to show a little bit more about the lived experience of these writers, and many of whom have been forgotten. Uh, I mean, Nemirovsky was forgotten for a long time, and now she's probably among the most famous of the writers I work on. Um, but Benjamin Fondant, Jean Malaquet are not as studied or remembered today. Um, so I hope to kind of recuperate the position of these writers and their experiences in the war. And also to show that these writers were continuing to write and reflect on their positions as Jews and as writers and immigrants in France. Um, we know from the history that Jewish writers were not allowed to publish uh, we know that Jewish immigrants were the first uh, targets of roundups, um, but it's also important to study what they were writing, what these writers were writing about during the war itself as well. Even if they weren't always publishing, they were still often writing. How did the authors you analyze relate to Judaism? What was the spectrum of attitudes and beliefs vis-a-vis -vis the Jewish faith? How did they relate to Jewish religious observance? Um, I would say it's it's quite different in each of their cases. Um, with Nemirovsky 
and Gar uh, Irene Nemirovsky, who I've mentioned, and Romain Gary. Um, it's kind of a cultural Jewishness. Romain Gary talks about um, Jewish humor as a main part of his connection to Jewish uh, to Jewish culture. Um, he talks about this in interviews later in his life, um, and I would say for Fond Benjamin Fondan, uh, the Romanian-born poet, um, you have the the closest to someone talking about religious belief, I think, among the five authors I focus on in my book. Um, I say that because he incorporates a lot of Jewish prayer into his poem Exodus, or Exod in French. Um, so he he is connecting to this idea of um, exile from the destruction of the Second Temple onward. So he relates in a, a little bit more reli religious way. Um, and then on, on a different note, Elsa Triolet was a very, you know, committed communist and Jean Malaquet was a Trotskyist. Um, and Triolet writes a lot about, you know, rejecting the idea of a particular Jewish voice in favor of an internationalist viewpoint that she has. So when I was writing the book and doing this research, I did often think about, you know, are these Jewish writers? They're, they are Jewish, but are they also Jewish writers? And, you know, I do think that Elsa Triolet and Jean Malaquet would not necessarily agree with me that they're Jewish writers, but because they're writing about Jewish identity and the war in the text that I'm studying, I, I think of them as part of this body of work of Jewish immigrant writers. What is your book's contribution to the history of immigration? What can students, scholars, and historians of immigration learn from the writers you examine? Well, when I was thinking about the history of immigration, I thought about it a lot in terms of my field in French and Francophone studies and um, histories of immigration from the former colonies, because I think about these writers having a kind of Jewish Francophony. Um, and so Francophony, um, you know, there there is a, a sense now, actually, can I start again? I'm sorry. Guess, yeah, yeah, go for <laughs> okay. it. Yeah, um, feel free. When I was thinking about the history of immigration, as I was working on this book, I thought a lot about it in terms of my field, which is French and Francophone studies. And I tried to engage a lot with the, the idea of Francophonie. Um, often in French studies, Francophonie refers to authors from the former colonies. And so I I thought a lot about how, how my work relates to Francophonie and Thanks to a lot of different Francophone uh, theorists and scholars, I learned a, a kind of vocabulary about, about multilingualism and bilingualism and hybridity. Um, and uh, this helped me give, give me some tools to talk about multilingualism in my book. Uh, and then in turn, what I hope to share with Francophone studies in terms of writers from the former colonies is to you know broaden this idea of migration and language. Um, I try to show in my book that the writers, um, even under uh, persecution and threat of deportation and legal exclusion from the nation, were uh, 
engaged with this idea of breaking down center and periphery. So the center and periphery comes up a lot when we talk about Francophonie and a lot of uh, scholars and, and writers now are trying to show that, you know, if you, if you divide French on the one hand and Francophonie on the other hand, you, you kind of uphold this idea as France is a center and everywhere else is the periphery. Um, and I think that the authors in um, in my book are are engaged with these questions about center and periphery um, in the in the 1940s as well. What does your book teach us about multilingualism and bilingualism? So, in my book, I argue that Jewish emigre writers negotiated their position as French writers through their interactions with the French language itself, and so their use of French in their literature becomes a way of challenging the binaries of insider and outsider, of center and periphery, of belonging and not belonging. And they were doing this even as they were very clearly excluded from the nation and persecuted. And so I, I try to show in each chapter in different ways how these writers incorporated multilingualism and bilingualism into their French writing. Um, I do want to say that I have a counterexample, which is Irene Nemirovsky, who engaged very much with multilingualism and bilingualism in the interwar period, and she removes it from her wartime writing. But um, in, in every uh, chapter, in the case of each of the five writers I study, I look at multilingualism, the way they represent accents in the text, and a kind of form of heteroglossia, um, which... I base on um, Bakhtin's idea of heteroglossia in his landmark essay, Discourse in the Novel. But I, I try to make an argument about, about it, that it's uh, that heteroglossia can be not just uh, levels uh, or registers of language but also that are all present in the same text, but also registers of different national languages that are represented in the text. And so... I, I I try to show how the writers are using multilingualism to do things with French that make a comment on their place in in uh, France under the occupation. Can you comment on the theme of shame in the writings that you examine? The novel that stands out to me the most in all of the novels that I that I read by the writers in my book that deals with shame would be Irene Nemirovsky's novel that David Golder that was originally published in 1929. And it tells a story of a Russian Jewish immigrant in France who has become a banker. Um, and uh, it, it kind of shows his demise. And uh, there's a the kind of climactic scene in the novel, which by the way, was also uh, adapted into a film just a few years after it was published. Um, the climactic scene is when David Golder is fighting with his wife, Gloria, and he begins to shout her Yiddish name, Havka, so her name before they immigrated to France. And uh, in the text, um, the the narrator says he, he yelled Havka at her, he yelled it at her like it was an insult, right? Or the, the, the use of her original name and the use of Yiddish in and of itself is an insult to her. And I think you feel this, you know, deep, the characters deep shame about their 
backgrounds when they're trying to be very assimilated French people or Gloria, um, David Golder's wife is trying to be a very assimilated French woman. And it's a really interesting moment in the text for this moment of, of shame. Um, and uh, I think it brings up interesting questions about Nemirovsky as well. Um, she's been the subject of a lot of debate about whether or not um, she was a self-hating Jew. And I, I, I would fall among the people who think it's it's more complex than that. That I think she's often showing, um, she's showing the ambivalence of her characters, and uh, the she's showing anti-Semitism in France and this sense of shame that immigrants felt. What does your book teach us about the psychology of self-hatred? How does self-hatred show up? in the writings of the authors you present? Well, in my book, what really interested me in depictions of self-hatred are moments in books where um, that, that focus on language or, or in other words, how uh, self-hatred comes about in discussions of language. And by that, I mean um, immigrants speaking Yiddish or uh, Polish or Russian in in France. So I mentioned Nemirovsky in talking about shame um, in her last book that she, her last novel that she published before the start of the occupation, Dogs and Wolves, um, she, she engages with this question of self-hatred. Um, she talks about two branches of the uh, Sinner family and one is a wealthy branch, one is a poor branch, and they all immigrate to France. And you have these cousins on the one hand who only speak French, and on the other hand, cousins who also speak Yiddish. And actually, something that's uh, something that's interesting is that in this novel, she does the opposite of what she did in David Golder. So in David Golder, using Yiddish is like an insult. Um, and so, you know, you see the character's self-hatred there. Um, and then in Dogs and Wolves, the Yiddish-speaking cousin um, is insulted by the French-speaking cousin using using French in some ways, in, in um, the way he, he uses the name of their cousin. And so you all, it's, it's interesting to me in Nemirovsky, the question of self-hatred often arises with the question of language and the use of Yiddish by these characters. Another, another example um, where you see a character who is reflects it, uh, who reflects on a moment of self-hatred, um, and that's in Jean Malaquet's novel World Without Visa. He has a French Jewish character named Hirsch, who's in the south of France and um, in, in Marseille, and he's talking to uh, Polish Jewish immigrants who are also in Marseille, and they're all trying to leave France. And uh, they kind of get into an argument, and one of the characters starts uh, yelling curses in Yiddish. And he he starts to feel so, so angry within himself, Hirsch, that it's because of these immigrants that the French are starting to hate Jews, that he never experienced anti-Semitism in France before these people came. Um, and then all of a sudden he kind of realizes that he doesn't actually hate these immigrants at all. He's just so, so deeply scared. And so you have this 
moments of self of of self-awareness about uh self-hatred and also the role that language plays in it what is your book's contribution to yiddish studies what is your book's contribution to jewish studies what does your book reveal about jewish literature during the holocaust i think that the writers in my book give a kind of broader answer to the question what is a jewish language um, they're writing outside of the debates about which language would be a Jewish national language, Yiddish or Hebrew. Um, and uh, I think that, yeah, they give a kind of broader answer to this. I say that because, you know, I I, I found Max Weinreich's classic terminology of Jewish internal and external bilingualism really useful in, in my research. Um, Jewish internal bilingualism would be Hebrew and Yiddish. And Jewish external bilingualism would be Hebrew or Yiddish and a secular national language. But in my book, the writers use a Jewish multilingualism in which Jewish languages function within a matrix of national languages, as well as within the supposedly secular language of French. So in their writings, Jewish emigre, um, sorry, uh, Jewish emigre authors use multiple languages in French, um, including transcribed Hebrew and Yiddish, but also French and the languages of their countries of origin, as well as descriptions of Yiddish accents in French. So they also incorporate other European languages, including Russian, Polish, and German. And then sometimes, as in the case with Elsa Triolet, um, they might leave Hebrew and Yiddish out altogether um, in thinking of different European languages. So in this way, French isn't kind of isn't a separate category that can't contain Jewish voice, but instead um, it's a part of uh, the use of French as a part of emigre authors' engagement with Jewishness and with French writerly identity. So they're kind of moving beyond the only uh Yiddish and Hebrew and another secular language to think more broadly about Jewish language. What are the most important secondary sources you've consulted in your research process, which had the greatest impact on the ideas you pr present as you were in the process of forming them? Two books in particular were really important to me as I was doing my research. They're both uh, translated from French into English. Giselle Sapiro's The French Writer's War and then Pascal Casanova's The World Republic of Letters. And I really admire these books greatly, and they ended up inspiring me to think more about writers and immigration. So Giselle Sapiro in The French Writer's War argues that writers engaged in the war through the prism of their writerly profession, professions, and then also through their participation in major literary and politicized institutions. Um, interestingly, Elsa Triolet ends up being an important example for her, and she's the only, uh, um, Triolet is the only of the writers in my book who appears in Sapiro's text. Um, she is an important example for Sapiro because of her role in the Comité National des Écrivains and because she was awarded the prestigious literary award the Prix Goncourt. So um, Triolet is an important example because she possesses symbolic capital. 
But this drew me to think about all of the writers who did not have symbolic capital and were not part of cultural institutions. And um, I wanted to study what they were writing and show that we shouldn't assume silence on their part um, just because they they didn't have platforms or as many networks. And then Pascal Casanova's book, The World Republic of Letters, um, is, is an amazing text in which she posits a global system that exists in its own time frame and that has its own centers and peripheries. And Paris is the, the center of this uh, world republic of letters. So she investigates the continued uh, literary domination that the center Paris exercises over the peripheries in this very hierarchical uh, world republic of letters. Um, that's that's not not a harmonious kind of republic. Um, and then, you know, this hierarchy that she studies did draw some of the writers I study to Paris as the capital of the literary world to use or or a major capital of the literary world to use Casanova's terms. Um, but then this changes during the war. So Casanova doesn't really address World War II in this book very much. Um, but that's really obviously the center of my study. And I want to show that these writers were investigating the idea of a center and periphery in a different way. So their wartime writing wasn't so much a drama between the periphery and the center, which is what Casanova shows, but rather um, their writing was a reflection of um, these authors' position in the center where they have multiple identities as they're being persecuted in a country in crisis. Do you have a personal favorite piece of all the ones you analyzed? If not, are there specific texts that come up in your book that you found personally meaningful in a profound way? I would say the writer who I enjoy reading the most generally is Romain Gary for his humor. His writing always makes me laugh. Um, and are just so moving generally. But my favorite text that I worked on would be World Without Visa by Jean Malaquet or Planète Sans Visa in French, um, in which he depicts Marseille and the world of refugees in the, at the start of the occupation or trying to leave Europe through the port of Marseille um, or through the Pyrenees. Um, I think this book just kind of shifted my perspective a lot to, to Marseille away from Paris. Um, I have been so Paris-centric in a lot of my studies that it, it just was amazing to see, you know, the how the literary center shifted from Paris to Marseille. And I think it's just an amazing text that really depicts this panorama. Um, I think in reviews at the time, people called it a panorama um, or um, this panorama of the city and all the refugees um, from different countries trying to escape. What transpires in Planet Sans Visa? Can you tell us about its broader plot, its main characters? Can you offer a synopsis of what Jean Malaquet is trying to say in this novel? So Malaquet wrote Planet Sans Visa over the course of five years from 1942, while he was waiting for a visa in Marseille to 1947 when he was living in exile in Mexico. And the novel presents a world of refugees in the tense atmosphere of Marseille 
under Vichy prior to the Nazi invasion in 1942, but already deep into the occupation. And it has um, overlapping plots that feature groups of characters who are trying to avoid arrest and secure visas through a fictionalized version of the Emergency Rescue Committee. Um, and so Malake depicts the places he himself frequented and the people he knew um, when he lived in Marseille before his flight from the city. So he he has a fictional de depiction of the Emergency Rescue Committee, of Varian Fry, of Peggy Guggenheim, of Victor Serge and his son, among others. And so it's a really fascinating, fascinating text that depicts this time. Um, he also he also is very engaged with their language and representing the accents of all of these different people who are in Marseille. <laughs> How is the city of Marseille depicted in Planet Sans Visa? What is significant of his about his presentation of the history of Marseille in World War II? Well, the idea of a panorama um, comes up in a lot of the reviews of the book when it was published in 1947. And he is really giving this wide lens view of the city at this really key moment in its history in the beginning of the 40s. Um, David Rousset has a famous line that the only way out of Europe was through Marseille or Auschwitz for Jewish people at that time. And so he, yeah, like I said, he has this sweeping view of the city. Um, although the book does largely center around the port of Marseille, and a lot of the text also depicts um, the cafes in the old port and um, this kind of world of refugees. You could connect the book to Anna Seger's really excellent novel, Transit, which is also about refugees trying to leave Marseille um, at the start of the occupation. What can you tell us about Romain Gary? Can you tell us about the story told in Education Européenne. Can you describe the plot and can you relate it to Romain Gary's life and the context of Romain Gary's biography? So Romain Gary um, immigrated to France as a teenager. So he is a little uh, different from the other five, other four writers because he came, I think, at the age of 14 and he first lived in Nice with his mother. Although he, when he was doing his... Uh, studies he moved to Paris um, and he began to write and he um, was, became a really important figure in the French resistance and later a diplomat. So Education Européenne is about the Polish resistance so it's interesting that he's writing about the Polish resistance when he's involved in the free French forces in London and parts of the novel Education Européenne were published in La France Libre, uh, which was published out of, out of London. And it's one of the few publications, it's one of the few articles or stories published in La France Libre that directly addresses Jewish persecution. So Education Européenne is really interesting because it's a novel within a novel. You have um, a resistance brigade in, in Poland and one of the one of the fighters, Dobranski, is writing a collection of short stories, and his book is called Education Européenne. 
And uh, so within the novel Education Européenne, you have um, uh, a few short stories, um, for, I think four short stories that are reproduced in the text. And um, one of them, for example, is called The Bourgeois of Paris. And it's about, it's about a building in Paris where there's a Jewish man who knows he's going to be arrested or is scared of being arrested. And um, they also have in the building um, an SS officer who has uh, like, you know, taken over an apartment. And it just seems, it seems as if the characters are all indifferent or even collaborating. And throughout the story, uh, the Jewish tenant wants to say goodbye to the concierge and she's too busy to, to talk to him. Um, and then at towards the end, you realize that the the whole building or much of the building is in on this resistance clandestine press and they're trying to hide these pamphlets from the SS soldier. Um, but the Jew the Jewish character doesn't doesn't know this either. Um, and uh, the concierge goes to see him finally and he's committed suicide. And it's a it's a really moving story. And it's also it's also very interesting because of all the layers of language that are supposed to be present in it. So you have Gary writing in French about a Polish brigade. And in the Polish brigade, you have a figure writing a book in Polish that's about France, where the characters are supposed to be speaking French. So I think he's doing all kinds of interesting things with um, what a, a form of heteroglossia that I mentioned before, which is not just multiple registers of language within a text, but multiple registers of national language you know you're some sometimes he does depict polish and german um and um and jewish prayer as well um in hebrew and other times it's just he's indicating in different ways which language the characters are speaking so he, it's a it's it's a very multi-layered uh text another author who shows up in the book is elsa triolet you emphasize her bilingualism between Russian and French. What can be learned about bilingualism from Elsa Triolet's example? How did she oscillate and alternate between French and Russian? So Elsa Triolet is a really interesting figure. She has an amazing quote in a book she wrote in the 1960s called La Mise en Mot, or you could translate that as putting into words. And she says, it sounds like a disease. I suffer from bilingualism. So she had actually a very difficult relationship with her French-Russian bilingualism. Um, ironically, I would say it's only during World War II that she writes about bilingualism as you know a very positive thing for her. Um, so... In the interwar period, especially, she writes a lot about the painful and confi confining experience of being a bilingual writer in interwar France. Um, so, and and she doesn't refer to Yiddish or Hebrew in her work, um, but reflects on French and Russian bilingualism. So, in the interwar period, she um, she writes a lot about, um, you know characters who have 
uh, difficulty switching from uh, immigrant female characters who have difficulty switching from Russian to French. Um, she has she wrote essays about her difficulties um, writing when she began to write in French in 1938, because before that, even when she was in France, Triolet was writing in Russian. Um, she has these amazing uh, images in her essays, uh, Elsa Triolet, about um, trying trying to about her trying to write in French was like wearing a plaster corset. Um, so what's interesting to me actually is that her her way of speaking about bilingualism changes during World War II briefly because she has a character named Louise in her novel, A Fine of 200 Francs, or um, in French, it's Le Premier Accroque de 100 Francs. Um, she has a, this character, Louise, who's in the resistance. And uh, Louise is not a Jewish character, but she is Rus she's bilingual because she's French, but she grew up in part in Russia because her father because of her father's work. Um, and uh, she, she she becomes like this hero hero figure who brings the Jewish character into the resistance. And he only becomes part of the resistance when he uh, rejects Jewish particularism, actually. So it's really interesting to look at how her writing about bilingualism changes. Um, another way you see bilingualism come up in a really positive way in her wartime writing is Triolet's own journalistic writing for the clandestine resistance press. And she talks about the MOI or MOE um, and the um, bilingualism of some of the resistance groups that were largely made up of immigrants. Another figure who you devote attention to is Benjamin Fondant. What can you tell us about his life and biography? What can you tell us about his wife, Geneviève? So Benjamin Fondant was a poet and philosopher who was born in Romania at the end, very end of the 19th century. And he immigrated to France in the 1920s. He was already an active member of the Romanian literary avant-garde in Bucharest before he left for France. And he became a French citizen in 1938 um, and was mobilized into the French infantry and served in the Phony War. He was taken a prisoner and escaped and then was in a military hospital in Paris. And he spent the occupation living in semi-hiding in Paris. Um, and, and what's been fascinating for my own research is that he rewrote much of his poetry from the interwar period. Uh, and revised his poems during the occupation. So you really see physically in the archive how his approach to writing changed and how his ideas about writing and poetry changed during the war. His wife Genevieve uh, survived. She was not Jewish. She survived Fondan, who was deported and murdered in Auschwitz. Um, and she was instrumental in saving his work and making sure that his his work was published and saved and you know it really it really was published much more in the 1960s and we can thank the association Benjamin Fondan for doing so much work to to maintain the memory and writing of Benjamin Fondan. What can be learned from Benjamin Fondan's Romanian French bilingualism? What if anything is distinct about his bilingualism vis-a-vis -vis other 
bilingualisms you examine in this book. Sundan's ideas about bilingualism changed during the war. Uh, in the interwar period, before he came to France, he published a really interesting book or collection of essays on French literature. Um, he published it in 1922. It's called Images and Books from France, and it's in Romanian, although it has also been translated into French. Um, and he he wrote about the cultural and political implications of Romanian-French bilingualism, as well as on the very very large French influence on Romanian literature in the interwar period. So in his polemical preface to Images and Books from France, he engages with the role of national literatures in the formation of a nat national culture, revealing his ambivalence toward Romanian francophonie in the process. He even calls Romanian authors parasites on French literature and says that they are not able to assimilate French literature into Romanian culture in order to create something new. So he he says Romanian intellectuals depend on French literature because of their bilingualism, yet they do not write in French, and so they're not contributing to Romanian letters. And so he has this, you know, very polemical idea about Romanian francophonie. But then it, this becomes something very different during the war in his poetry. Um, I would say Fondan's wartime poetry pushes against the idea that any one language exists so that you could have a bilingualism with two distinct languages, right? Um, and that's very different from the other writers in this book. He um, he talks about, he has all these amazing lines in his poetry that I that indicate that it's impossible to ever just write in one language. Um, he, he does this in a number of ways. He concretely, he incorporates Hebrew letters and prayer um, into the into one of his poems, Exodus. He, he transcribes the Hebrew. Um, and then he also pushes against the idea of monolingualism in another way. He writes lines uh, like, I was speaking in a language that I never knew but forgot. Or um, if there were only one word in the world, there would still not be one language in the world. Um, and I would say his poetry during the war, and especially um, Exodus, um, is not a case anymore of bilingualism of French and Romanian, or of binary identities of Romanian and French, or uh, French and Jewish, but instead he's kind of uh, writing in all of these languages at once, because he says that there's no one language that exists. And it shows that you know, Hebrew can exist within French as it does in his in his poem. Um, so there can be a space for Jewish language in the French nation. And yet he's caught in a France that cannot accept this language with fluid boundaries, because of course he's writing this under the occupation. You alluded to his poem Exodus, or in French, L'Achsode. What transpires in this poem? What, do, what does the symbolism of rivers convey and reveal? How does it relate to the biblical Exodus story? And how does it present the events of the Holocaust? So Fondan began to write the poem Exodus in the 1930s, um, and he didn't publish it then um, in its entirety, but he rewrote it during the war. And Exodus follows 
Exodus or Lexod, his poem, follows the interminable cycle of displacements and exiles throughout Jewish history. And he represents each exile with a river. So the Nile for Jewish enslavement in Egypt, the river, the shores of Babylon for the destruction of the second temple and exile of the Jews from Jerusalem. And then finally, and this is what he adds during uh, the war is the central section about the Seine and the June 1940 civilian flight from uh, Paris southward or from the north to the south of the country. And the poem takes its name and central imagery from Psalm 137, which is the lamentations of the Jewish people after the siege of Jerusalem. And so this is a trope repeated throughout the poem, um, the lamentation on the shores of Babylon. And so he incorporates the Sen into this history of uh, exiles. And in some ways, Paris becomes like a new Jerusalem that the Jews are banished from. Um, he... Uh, he has a, a great, two really great lines in it um, that capture some something I've been try, I try to say in the book. Um, he says, we were turning around things that were turning around us at one point. And I think this kind of captures the uh, concentric circles in a sense or vortex of multiple identities in the war rather than this binary of bilingualism or center and periphery. Um, it's you know, appropriate that he chooses rivers as the unifying imagery of the poem, because water is, you know, a, a key image in a discourse of immigration. Uh, Nancy Green, um, important scholar of immigration in France, points out, you know, how we use terms of water and fluidity to think about immigration and the crossing of porous surfaces, like, you know, waves, flux, tide, currents of immigration. So, um, in that way, it also makes sense to think about each exile in terms of a river for Fondan. Someone that you alluded to earlier on is Irene Nemirovsky. Can you describe her in more detail? What can we learn about her biography and upbringing? Why is she significant? So Irene Nemirovsky was a pretty successful writer in the interwar period, but she was forgotten um, after the war. And she was rediscovered in the early 2000s in a um, kind of amazing way. Her daughters who survived uh, the Holocaust and Nemirovsky did not, um, had what they thought was her diary and they could never bring themselves to read it. And then they decided to sit down and really read it together. And they realized it was actually a manuscript of a novel, which was Cite Française, that was published in the early 2000s to great critical acclaim. And it's almost like this feeling of opening a time capsule um, because it's one of the few literary depictions of the June 1940 civilian flight from Paris southward. Um, and she you know, was writing it as the war was unfolding. So. Just to rewind a little, Nemirovsky was born in Kiev in 1903, and she grew up outside of the Pale of Settlement. She spoke French at home um, and um, had a French governess, signs of her class. Um, and, you know, the language of the home was not Russian or Yiddish, and her mother uh, wouldn't allow Yiddish in the home. Um, in 1917, she and her family fled the Bolshevik Revolution and eventually settled in Paris. Um, her father was a banker 
Nemirovsky married a Jewish man who worked in banking as well. And um, what's what's interesting about her her particular family background is that this is the world she depicts in many of her interwar novels. That so is Jewish uh, families when the men work in banking. Um, she she has you know she's she's a really interesting figure because she does have um depictions of you know that that are debatable about self about self-hatred again as i said earlier i don't think that she was a self-hating jewish person but um she does depict this world of banking often in really unflattering light and in um 1930, there's a really interesting article in L'Univers Israelite in which the journalist really pushes her about how she's depicting Jewish people in her books. Um, and this journalist, Nina Gorfinkel, is pushing her about David Golder and saying the book, you know, could give more material to anti-Semites. And Nemirovsky responds multiple times in the article, well, that's how I saw them. Um, as in, you know, this was my upbringing. This is how I I know this group of people, and I'm depicting them the way I saw them. And so, you know, her in this way, I think her her biography is important. How do her stories depict dilemmas surrounding Jewishness? In many of her interwar novels, uh, or uh, you know, in, in in the ones I'm I really am very interested in. She shows a Jewish background as a source of artistic inspiration for for characters, and and I say interwar novels because again, uh, she doesn't write about Jewish characters anymore during World War II. Um, so I can give a couple of examples. One is an earlier short short story or novella that she wrote, Un enfant génial, that's about this young. Um, Jewish boy, and in, this is takes place in Russia, and he has this deep uh, poetic gift, but its source is um, his Jewish background. And as he assimilates, he loses his gift. Uh, and in her last novel that she published before the occupation, which I mentioned earlier, Dogs and Wolves, we see something similar. Her character Ada Sinner who had immigrated from Kiev to Paris, and she's a painter. And um, her her cousin, Harry, who's from the same family, but is much more assimilated Jewish French man, you know, uh, he comes across one of her paintings. He doesn't know it's by his cousin. And he feels this deep calling to it. And, and the narrator, you know, shows how it has to do with his Jewish background and something in the painting calls to him. And Ada's gift is from her Jewish background. So um, I, it's interesting that she often shows these dilemmas about integration um, in France while showing, you know, French French uh, discrimination or anti-Semitism. Um, and then on the one hand, and then on the other hand, this kind of uh, Jewish background that's like a source of poetic or artistic inspiration that can also be a source of shame for the same characters. How does she depict the June 1940 exodus as it unfolded? And can you describe to our listeners what the June 1940 exodus was? Sure. Um, so the 
<laughs> the June 1940 exodus was this civilian flight southward. So um, Paris was not entirely emptied, but quite a bit emptied of a lot of the population um, who were who were trying to leave in advance of the Nazi um, arrival in Paris. And um, the film Forbidden Games is a great depiction of of the the flight you have you know um the the crowded roads um there was no nothing in place to organize this flight um there's huge numbers of people including refugees from luxembourg and from belgium who were also fleeing southward um to uh, ahead of the advance of the nazis uh you have this kind of mixing of different classes on the road, confusion, um, bombings, um, people losing each other. Uh, I recommend the film Forbidden Games for, and, and of course the novel Sweet Française for a depiction of this, you know, one, this major crisis uh, at the very start of the occupation or at the moment of the French defeat, I should say. And Nemirovsky depicted it as it unfolded, um, as you said, and it's one of the few literary depictions of the event written during the war itself. There are a lot of journalistic accounts, but Fondant's poem Exode and Nemirovsky's novel Suite Française are among the few depictions from the war itself, lit literary depictions, not journalistic ones. Um, Nemirovsky wrote in her in her notes, um, her, her archives are in Emec in France. In her notes for the novel, she, she said, uh, my God, what is this country doing to me? Since it rejects me, let's consider it coldly. Let's watch it lose its honor and its life. And uh, her her novel does that. It's kind of like a panorama of French dishonor. The first half of the novel follows five Parisian families and individuals on their journey from Paris at the start of the occupation. And for the most part, they're really unsympathetic uh, characters. But she she shows the things I mentioned, the mix of class on the road, people trying to leave with all of their uh, belongings, um, cars abandoned on the side of the road because they don't have fuel left. Um, and something very interesting about this novel is that it does not have any representation of Jewish people in it, um, which is all the more striking because her interwar writing does very much engage with the Jewish experience in France. Um, there are a lot of reasons why this might be the case. Um, you know, there, again, I mentioned she is often the subject of debate. Um, for those who accuse her of, you know, um, maybe accuse is too strong a word, but for those who see self-hatred in her writing, this deletion of Jewish voice is another example of it. But I'm not very convinced by that idea. Um, I think it's much more convincing against Susan Suleiman, as I mentioned earlier, argues that um, France rejected her. And so this this shows the rejection of Jews from the nation because they're not part of the story. If she's trying to tell a story of France, I, th I think also, you know, um, and, and also there's an, uh, a lot of other people have argued as well that if she's trying to publish even clandestine, like even under a pseudonym at this time, no one's going to publish stories about Jewish refugees. They're going to publish stories about French characters. And she very much needed the money from her, um, from her, from her writing during the occupation to survive. 
But I also, I my kind of contribution to this debate, I guess, is that um, she she has a kind of total flattening of voice. You know, her interwar writing so so multilingual or so much engaged with Jewish language, um, with Yiddish, with the adoption of French, of Russian, and all of that is just flattened um, and displaced from her text. And I think she's, she show you, you just have this sense in the book, Suite Francaise, but also in all the short stories she wrote during the war of this this just displacement in it. And I think it's almost like a silent displacement of Jewish voice in her books. What can you tell us about the piece, The Sweet Monsieur by Nemirovsky? What happens in this piece? What is the plot? Who are the characters? What is it about? So actually it's, um, Sweet Monsieur is an idea I had uh, because her novel, Sweet Francaise, uh, you know, is such a famous, well, a famous novel um but um i had i had an idea of thinking of three of her short stories under the kind of category sweet manger because they all are um they all have to do with a, a place in her novels that she calls manger um that's actually inspired by a real place it's a farm near where she lived in burgundy under the occupation um during the last years of her life um, I also think it's, I think maybe she might have also liked this name of this place that's important for three stories because it's kind can be a play on words like mon jeu, like my, myself and mon jeu, like my game or my, my acting or my, you know, my hiding even almost. Um, and all three stories are about people leaving the countryside for Paris or people coming from cities Um into the countryside. And again, you have this sense of displacement. And what's interesting to me is she does not mention anything about Jewish people in these texts. And yet there's always this sense of displacement. And as I mentioned earlier, a kind of silencing of Jewish voice and Jewish languages, because she she writes so interestingly about Jewish language and immigration in the interwar period. Um, the three stories are called Destiné, Les Revenants and L'Incendie, or Destinies, The Revenants, and The Fire. And they were they were all interestingly published under pseudonyms. So she did publish them during the war. And they, but you know, pretty shockingly, they're all published in Gringoire, which was a far-right collaborationist anti-Semitic journal. And this is another, you know, debate. Um, first of all, it's pretty amazing that this far right, you know, collaborationist publication was publishing a Jewish writer under a pseudonym. Um, uh, but obviously it's also highly problematic that she's publishing some in this kind of journal. And at the same time also, she was completely desperate uh, for money to support her family at the time. So uh, what what interests me about this Sweet Manger is the sense of displacement. Um, and, and I just find it interesting that they all kind of focus around um, this, this, this place, Manger. How do the authors examined in your book relate to Algeria? Well, I would say in, in, in reading them, um, I found it very useful to relate some of their writings to, to Jewish Algerian authors, 
Jacques Derrida and Hélène Sixou, who engaged quite a bit with bilingualism and multilingualism. And um, the, the biggest example for me would be Fondant's conception of language and calls to my mind Derrida's Monolingualism of the Other, a book um, Derrida published in 1996, so over 50 years after Fondant's death. And Derrida was an Algerian-born Jewish thinker. And for him, the French language that was imposed on Algerian Jews uh, created a cycle of alienation. And he writes, you know, he has, just as Fondan has these kind of paradoxical statements about language in a lot of his wartime rewritings of his poems, Derrida also has these paradoxical statements, like we only ever speak one language, we never speak, we never only speak one language. So according to Derrida, one can never speak in one language and there's no such thing as a single language. Um, every ling language, including French, is multilingual. And this is something Fondan says in his poems as well. Um, um, and and especially there's one line in particular in Exode that's uh, almost the same uh, to some extent, or the idea is the same, that there's no, there's even if there were one word, there wouldn't just be one language in the world because we're all foreigners to each other. So I, I found it very useful to to think about Derrida and Alain Sixou. Also because, you know, um, Derrida and Alain Sixou write about the Jewish experience of the Holocaust in Algeria as well. So a lot of their ideas are about multilingualism and bilingualism that are born out of this exclusion, but in Algeria, not in the uh, metropole. How were the authors presented here, remembered after 1945? What became of their legacies and reputations? Uh, maybe I'll work my way through each of them. Um, Romain Gary is probably best remembered and most studied of these writers. He is also especially known for his literary hoax. Um, he won the very prestigious Prix Goncourt twice, which is not really allowed, um, because he um, he published some of uh, some some of his most famous novels under a pseudonym, and he kept that hidden. Um, and it was only discovered after his death uh, who who he was. Um, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, Christopher Miller has written a really amazing book about literary hoaxes, and Gary is one of these figures. But he's probably the most read in France today of any of these authors, um, and is very much thought of as a French writer. Um, Elsa Triolet was the first woman to win the Prix Goncourt, uh, the same prize that Gary won, um, in the first uh, award ceremony after the end of the occupation. Uh, she became a really, you know, an important figure in the uh, communist literary world, but she's, you know, kind of fallen out of fashion in France, I would say. Uh, but she had, you know, this amazing honor of being the first woman to win the Prix Goncourt. And then Nemirovsky, as I mentioned, was totally forgotten until the early 2000s with this spectacular rediscovery of her of her works. She was the only person to ever, or, or at the time when she won, was the only person to have a the Prix Renaudot, another very prestigious literary award, um, awarded to her posthumously. And then Fondan and Malaké are, you know, much less remembered. There was an amazing exhibit of Fondan at the Memorial de la Shoah in Paris a while ago, and it's really thing. And I and I 
uh, owe a great deal of gratitude to Geneviève Nakash of the Société Jean Malaquet and Michel Carassou of the Association Benjamin Fondan. These two associations really have done so much um, to promote the writing of Fondan and Malaquet. What is your book's contribution to the history of immigration? What can students, scholars, and historians of immigration learn from the writers you examine? When I was working on this book, I thought a lot about the history of immigration in terms of my field, which is French and Francophone literatures. And often when we say Francophonie, um, we mean writers from the former colonies. But there is um, a sense in French studies today or French and Francophone studies today to think about a global literature in French and, uh, you know, to, to look at European Francophonie. Um, I, I try to talk about Jewish Francophonie as well as Francophonie from former colonies. Um, and, and all of these, including different Francophonies of different former colonies are, are very distinct um, from each other but you can learn so much from each of them. So, you know, studying uh, Francophone writers from the former colonies and studying scholars um, who work on Algerian writers especially um, have you know, really influenced my work and give, helped me form a kind of vocabulary to think about what the writers in my book are doing with language, with multilingualism. and. I guess what I would hope my book adds to Francophone studies more broadly is this question of about this question of language and migration. Uh, there's a lot of ideas now that if you say French and Francophone, you're just upholding this idea of France as a center and everything else is a, a periphery, right? And it's upholding um, that that idea and. Uh, a lot of scholars and writers try to move away from that uh, way of thinking of France as the center. And what I hope to show in my book is that these writers are trying to break down the idea of center and periphery, even under um, under the occupation, where there is very much the sense that these people, these Jewish writers are peripheral and excluded. But they, the these writers are, are breaking down the idea of center and periphery already in the 1940s in really interesting ways. As we bring our dialogue to a close today, can you tell us about the research you're doing now? Can you tell us about your current project and the work you've been doing next after this book came out? Yeah, I'm working on two larger projects. The The first one is my, my second book. Um, and this book is going to study the wartime origins of the theater of the absurd through a dual biography of one of its most central playwrights, Eugène Ionesco, and its foundational critic, Martin Eslin. And I want to argue in this book that the theater of the absurd and the post-war scholarship on this movement are deeply informed by Eugène Ionesco's and Martin Eslin's experiences of migration during the war and their involvement in propaganda during the Second World War. And and then I'm I'm working um, with my uh, colleague and collaborator Alyssa Shapiro, who's a curator, um, on an article, and we're working on proposing an exhibition about Marseille. So this um, this comes out of both of our work and on my end about Jean Malaquet's representation of Marseille, and we're looking at Marseille as a kind of focal point. It's a central destination and point of departure for refugees in the war, 
Um, it becomes a city of exile, but also a central place of camaraderie during the war. So we're looking at visual artists and writers and intellectuals who gathered there after having fled Paris or having been released from French internment camps. Um, and and then we're looking at Marseille as kind of the the um, uh, point of departure to New York and to Mexico City. So it's really about you know Marseille and then New York and Mexico City. So these are the, the two uh, larger projects I'm working on right now. Sounds stellar. Sounds like a fantastic idea. And, and I can't wait for it to come out. I wish you the best of luck throughout your research journey as you prepare this and go through all that the challenge of the project will put you through. But um I can't wait till it's ready. I think it'll be an amazing contribution. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for these really thoughtful questions. Oh, thank you for your thoughtful responses to them. <laughs> to our listeners, I am your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. Today, I have been in dialogue with Julia Elsky. We have been discussing her new book, Writing Occupation, Jewish Emigre Voices in Wartime France, published by Stanford University Press, 2020. Julia is Associate Professor of French at Loyola University in Chicago.